I recently pulled a tape from our admittedly pitiful home collection of Christmas songs. We uh, put a few of them together at this time of year, and I looked on one of the tapes, one of the cases, and in light of our series here, I was uh, struck by the title. It said, Season of Love, and uh, recorded a number of classical pieces of music whose association with Christmas largely escaped me, but it's uh, beautiful music, and we play it because it has that uh, title on it, I guess. The association that attracted my attention in light of our current series, of course, was the association of love with Christmas. I suppose the case could be made. This is certainly a season for uniquely expressing family love, the familial, familiar love that we talked about last week, or as the Greek word would read it, storge. The love for familiar people, work, at school, especially family. This natural love for those who have become entire, who we've become entirely used to, familiar with. I suppose it is also a season for other kinds of love, for the love between close friends, for romantic love as well. And to these two kinds of love, we turn our attention today as we strive to emulate the love of God and to consider His purposes for us. To this point in our series, we've established that God is love. Love flows unsolicited, unnecessarily, uninhibited, unsullied, unselfishly from His nature. And as I have repeatedly emphasized as of chief importance, God's love is defined and epitomized, not as some capacity to overlook or excuse our sin, God's love is defined and epitomized in the willing death of Jesus Christ in behalf of rebellious sinners. Awed by this immense love, this sacrificial, undeserved love, we are called as God's people to live in imitation of Christ's love. We are to love God and to love one another as Jesus loved us. As we pursue this calling, we acknowledge that our human love is somewhat distinct from God's love. We are created with the inherent need to give love to others and to receive love from others. It is not evil to receive love. It is human. But divine love may, must sanctify the lesser loves with which we were created. So we've reviewed here four loves, and we'll seek to complete these human loves here this week as we discuss this. The love of storge, or family love, familiarity, the love of familiarity of philia, the love of friendship, and of eros, the love of romance. Comparing all of these and hoping to fill all of these with divine or agape love. As we reviewed last week, storge love, love of familiarity or family love, it deals with people with whom we are familiar and comfortable. It's not necessarily just family. It might be those at school or at work. But unsanctified by agape love, storge is inherently given to jealousy, to selfishness, to bitterness, to taking others for granted, and even to idolatry. And so as we applied last week, God's best purposes can be repeatedly sacrificed on the altar of family love. In the name of family love, God's people are given to squander time and money 
and abilities to the detriment of God's cause. As we applied it to our church, it can lead us as a church, if this is all that our love is, it can lead us as a church to be threatened by those who come into the circle. And we are also reminded that familiarity breeds contempt. If this is all the deeper that our love goes, a familiarity as a church and with our families, we will fall very short of the love that God intends for us and has placed in our hearts as His people. We turn now to the two other kinds of love with the goal of exposing their potential corruption when not sanctified by divine love. I understand and we need to recognize this is a lengthy detour in our study through Scripture and its purposes for us in Christ. But what we have sought to do, what I'm seeking to do last week and this week, is to expose a great danger. We can think that we love God. We can think that we love others, and to a degree we will, of course, be accurate. But we may love one another and we may love God with nothing more than a human love. A love that any unbeliever could really demonstrate because it is part of who we are as creatures. But the love that God gives to His people is a love that is unique. It is a love that comes from Him, and it is a love that must transform our other loves. So as we work to that end, we're going to take another uh, offshoot here of our topic and to look at these two other loves. First of all is the love philia, or the love, what we might call the love between friends. It is that kind of love which draws pleasure from what it finds in the beloved and shares mutually with the beloved. Now, I might admire a man who writes a book that capably expresses my deepest aspirations and convictions. But am I his friend? I'm not going to really be his friend unless we somehow meet, begin to interact, and begin to share with one another our commonly held perspective of life. This kind of love, friendship type of love, is the kind of love that must take root in companionship. By the way, may I just throw in here as an aside, this has nothing to do with homosexuality or that type of orientation. We live in a culture that has a hard time believing that there are two men that can love one another, two women that can love one another without any erotic element in it. We need to re realize that, that it has nothing to do with this sort of love. There is a love of friendship that grows out of, com uh, out of companionship that can be very right very real. Now, it might lead into other areas because all of these human loves can be corrupted. But it has nothing to do uh, with erotic love, philia. Philia shares a lot in common, in fact, with more with storge love, that is, with family or familiar love. But they are different. Let me illustrate the two, and I think this will begin to make sense. Let's take a very rugged scene, a logging camp, and some workers in this camp they are out in the field for a month at a time and come back for a week of break and go back out for another month. Now, they're in that logging camp. They work long hours together felling trees and cutting them up. They eat all of their meals together. They travel from, from one place in the forest to another. And so they obviously get to know each other very well. And what type of love develops between them? This would be the storge love, the love of familiarity. They begin to learn how one another 
looks and talks and smells and and all of their uniquenesses, and they become at peace with it, and they just live with one another. There is a family type of love between them, a comfortable situation. And they even enjoy some common decency toward one another in all of this, and probably not a few squabbles as well. That's family, storge love. This is not friendship. Now, if you would ask any of these men who've been together, if, as long as things are going okay, they might say, all of these men are my friends. We all use the word that way. That is not, however, the essence of this word friendship, love, or philia. That is not strictly speaking. They are not strictly speaking friends. Now let's consider, though, that during one break and all of the men are interacting at different times in different places, two men sit down on a log in the middle of the day for lunch and they begin to talk together and they have one of those conversations, you've had it before, where one person says something and you look at them and say, you think that too? That might be the beginning of a friendship. Now they have a knowledge of one another, a relationship with one another, but now they're on to something that they share in common that they enjoy in one another. And as they would develop that and, and begin to find more and more that they shared in common as two men, this might be the beginning of friendship. So we could say it this way, that friendship type of love finds its roots in some type of community, in some type of commonality. There has to be interaction, and in that interaction we find a unique individual who thinks like we do, who has some of the same ambitions. So out of the soil of cooperation and companionship grows filial love between two people who find this mutual joy and benefit in one another. Now, as we turn to Scripture to illustrate, we really find in Scripture very little illustration of this particular bent of love. In the Bible, the Greek word philia does not always refer to friendship love. It's very important that we understand these are hooks on which we are hanging application. These words are not used exclusively in, one, in the one unique way that we're describing them here in Scripture. So when we find the word philia in Scripture, often it is a synonym with agape. Many times there's really no in, uh, difference intended at all. At other times there are. Now obviously the word philia does not always refer to friendship love as we study the Scriptures, such as John chapter 12 and verse 25, which says, speaks of the one who loves his life. If anyone loves his life, he will lose me, says Christ. Well, the love for self there is obviously not a friendship type of love, strictly speaking. So the word is used in Scripture in various ways. But we do find this word uniquely used, and I want to just run through these quickly for you. John chapter 5 and verse 20. We find that this word is a legitimate word to use between God the love of the Father, the love of the Son for one another. John chapter 5 and verse 20. This word is employed by John as he records Christ's words. John chapter 5 and verse 20. For the Father, says Jesus, loves the Son and shows him all he does. The Father loves the Son, this is the Greek word philia. Philia is used of God's love for God. Philia, secondly, is used of God's love for man. And here I'll uh, just appeal to your memory. If you'd like to turn to these quickly, you may, but let me just appeal to your memory. John eleven three 3 
and 36, we find that Jesus loved Lazarus. And the word love that is used there is this from this word philia. He loved Lazarus. John 15, verses 13 through 15, Jesus calls the disciples his friends using this same root word. If they do what he commands, he says, they are his friends. There is a love relationship between them that can be called friendship. John 16, 27, God loves the disciples because they love Christ. The word phileo from the same word is used of love here. In John 20 and verse 2, John is spoken of as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The word philia once again. This is a unique type of friendship love. It would appear here in reference to John. In Titus 3 and verse 4, we have this phrase, the love of God our Savior. Again, philia is used. In Revelation 3 and verse 19, those whom I love I rebuke, says Christ to the churches. Those whom I love with this type of love. And again, we realize then that it is not a strict dichotomy. That filial love is, is only a word used of man's love for friends, but it is also a word that is used of God's love for man. So philia is used of God's love for God. It is used of God's love for man. Philia is used of our love for God. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 22. We read here as Paul closes out this epistle, If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. If anyone does not love, the word there is phileo, from this root word philia. If anyone does not love the Lord. So we can use this word of our love for God. I think there's a nice contrast for us here also in James. James chapter 2. In verse 23, if you turn there, James 2 and verse 23, we have here in a positive vein this same word, philia. And of course, we're realizing the difference with our English language. All of these words are translated either love or friendship in some way. We have a unique Greek word that is used here when we read the word friend. Verse 23 of chapter 2. In James, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend from this same root word. Chapter 4 and verse 4 of James points to the other side using the same word. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? In other words, James says, putting those two ideas together, there is a mutually exclusive type of friendship. We can be a friend of the world or a friend of God, but we cannot be both. Philia is also used of our love for man. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. We find here that this word is even used by way of command. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Where we read here, and this is a difficult translation, for us, but we find it here in the NIV, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That word be devoted is the Greek word philia, and it is put on the word storge. That's interesting from our study last week. The two are put in combination, have this brotherly, familiar love for one another. Now, it's, it's translated here, be devoted, which somewhat misses that concept. 
The word brotherly love here also is our word philia, but it is connected to the word brother. So if we would paraphrase, here is what God calls us to do. Treat one another with family, love, and friendship in brotherly love toward one another. The believers in a church then are to love one another as a familiar family. They're to love one another as friends who share in common their love for God and the saving gospel. So take you and any person in this church and put us in the logging camp and we sit on the log for lunch. What is our commonality? What is the bond with which we connect as God's people? It is Jesus Christ and His saving gospel. It is the love of God in our hearts as a unique people and it is the basis of a right type of friendship. Once again, it's clear that agape love is not to replace philia then necessarily. A philia is good and it's proper, but agape must, as we will note soon, sanctify philia. Third John 14, let me just mention it here, but John there refers even to the believers in the church as his friends, using the same word. There's a commonality in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, clearly, the Bible does not use the term philia of merely human friendships. However, when the word is used of love for God or man, it is certainly appropriate to understand the idea that there is a kind of love which draws pleasure from what it finds in the beloved and shares mutually with the beloved. That is the essence of Christ's love for his disciples and of our love for God. There is a common feature that we find enjoyable in one another. It is defined by this word philia. Now let me stop for a few moments and describe what this looks like. First of all, philia is developed in the crucible of performance. Storge, that type of family love, grows accustomed to the beloved, develops a relaxed acceptance no matter the differences. Mere time and familiarity grow storge. By contrast, philia love, friendship love, develops as our friend continues to win our admiration for that which matters most to us. Storge love, storge loves the unlovable because it has grown accustomed to him. Philia loves only the lovable and that for what he provides. So first of all, Philia is developed in the crucible of performance. There has to be some type of continuing demonstration of this love. Secondly, Philia love wants to talk about common interests. What do romantic lovers want to talk about? They want to know all about one another's background. As there is a romantic interest that develops, a person generally can't wait to find out all about you and you all about them. What the beloved is doing at the moment or thinking at the moment when a person is taken with romantic love is of extreme importance. Lovers will stop at the moment and say, I wonder where she is. I wonder what she's doing. I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder if he's thinking about me. All concerned about what the other person's doing. Friends really don't care, honestly. Do you care about your best friend and what they're doing right now and if they're brushing their teeth or if they're thinking about you? That really, it's okay to think about, but it really doesn't matter. Not really concerned about that. Friends have no interest in one another's daily affairs or historical backgrounds. Now, they're going to share historical backgrounds, 
But the, the, the close friends that we have, we're really not too concerned about where their mother came from, frankly. That's the difference. Lovers, writes C.S. Lewis in his book Four Loves, are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. So it wants to talk about common interest that is out there that we both see. Thirdly, philia is muted by the need to serve. It is muted. It is downplayed in the need to serve. In other words, romantic love rejoices in an opportunity to help the beloved out of trouble. Oh, great, here's an opportunity for me to do something and to demonstrate my love. Friends, that's really not what it's all about. Now, friends will help each other. They'll be very happy to help each other. They'll be there at a time of need. But it's uh, kind of always with a don't mention it rider. That's not the essence of our friendship, to be serving and helping each other. The essence is this common interest and mutual respect that we have, that we find within one another, not necessarily our service to each other. It's not the particular strength of Philia to help a friend. It will but it's not necessarily its strength. It's an intrusion in the friendship. What friends really want to do is pursue their common interest and enjoy their friendship, not watch one another's kids or change one another's bedpan. That's storge, love. That's really not philia, love, though philia will. Number four, philia finds three a joy and four even better. What do lovers want? They want two. Not three. Three is an intrusion. But for friends, three is only helpful. In fact, when other friends join the group, they increase the enjoyment that all receive from the get-together, generally speaking. Romantic lovers find that three is a crowd. Friendship love is largely untainted by such jealousy. The catch, of course, is what? The catch, of course, is that those brought into the circle need to be genuinely friends, sharing these common interests. And you know that uncomfortable situation when three or four who very much share a common interest and are genuine friends are in a circle and someone from outside who doesn't share any of their commonality joins the circle. All of a sudden, the friendship kind of comes to end at the moment, at least the enjoyment of it. The intruder is an intruder and ruins the joy. And this is precisely why those who try to make friends rarely succeed. They are already jealous. They are already envious. They are wanting to talk about us as friends. It's the exact opposite of what friendship does. Philia love is found when we find someone looking in the same direction. He or she sees the same things you see and shares the same desires that you share. If you're looking directly at that person and demanding that he or she be your friend, you hinder the very thing Philia needs to survive, a mutually agreeable external focus. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about that belief, that game, that quest, that type of music, that art form, whatever it is. That's what is the center of our friendship. When someone aggressively says it's about us, Philia hightails it and runs. And you've maybe been on the receiving end of such a quest on someone's part. It's extremely uncomfortable because it's not the way Philia responds. Let me say then, on the basis of all of that, that Philia is really rare. 
Many never really experience that. We'll all say that we have many friends, and we use that word in one sense. But in this true sense of the word, philia is very rare. There is no inherent need for it. In fact, some would argue that as many as 90% of people never experience it. They don't have to. It is a dessert on life's plate. It is not essential for us. This is one love we can live without. Perhaps the test as to if you've really entered this circle or not, and not all can uh, appreciate the test, I realize, but you can at least, I think, understand this. Is there an individual with whom you are a friend? And then somewhere along life's way, you're separated. Let's say for five years, there's no contact at all, no phone calls, no letters, and maybe they trail off immediately at the beginning. And five years later, maybe it's a workmate, a neighbor, a schoolmate, someone, but someone that you counted a friend, and after that five-year absence, you get together again. The test is this, what happens when you meet? If after catching up on necessary details, your conversation goes absolutely dry, you try to keep it alive by these painful reminiscences about past shared experiences, you are never really friends. You may have great admiration for each other, and you may develop a friendship somewhere down the line. It's not to say that, but that's not really friendship. Here's the, here is the positive test, though. If you find that you really don't care all that much about exactly what has happened in that person's life in the last five years, it's, it's interesting to you, and you can respectfully appreciate it, but that's not what you're really after. And after catching up on that information, you really don't feel any need to reminisce about the past, but you joyfully fall into conversation just like you had been together five minutes ago rather than five years ago, that's a friend. That's someone who has this common interest with the, that you share and appreciate in each other, and that, is, that can well be filial love. But I don't have to explain here, but let me flesh it out a little bit. I think we all understand that this kind of love can be very easily corrupted. First of all, it has an inherent problem with isolating people. It is very enjoyable, and that joy can become dangerously exclusive because when someone enters the circle who is not part of the friendship, they to some degree steal the joy of the circle. And that's a danger. Secondly, this kind of love can tend toward pride. Pride usually sets in when it says that I, when Phileas says that I am part of this elite clique, and aren't I special to be part of these special people? He begins to think too much of others' connection with self. Everyone, writes Lewis, who is not in the circle must be shown that he is not in it. That is many times the end corruption of filial love. Thirdly, it encourages mutual corruption. Second Samuel 13. And I mean by this, of course, not that it is itself inherently corrupt, but it is given to this corruption. We find an illustration of this, I think, in Second Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. Second Samuel 13, beginning with verse 1, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Now, we're not reading in Greek here, of course, and so these words for love are not applicable to us. But this is obviously an erotic type of love. 
Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. And we know that Amnon follows this counsel and uses it to great depravity. I simply draw from this account to illustrate the corruption to which Philia is susceptible. There was a connection between these two men. There was a particular interest that they shared. They understood one another's language. In that given and corrupt relationship of friendship, they were on the same page together and had admiration for one another, but that admiration took a very bad turn and led to this horrible rape. Filial love can embolden a man to perform courageous goodness but it can also embolden him to commit hideous evil. And that is the problem with friendship by itself. A circle of friends can unite around any common belief and ambition. That, what? You too? Discovery can easily lead a group to theft, to racism, to rebellion, to deception, and as here to rape. Philia can be easily corrupted. We could add to it that it certainly breeds the potential for betrayal, and we find here even in this same context David's friend Ahithophel who betrays him. So when Philia love is betrayed outright, it can be a deep, deep wound. Now we must proceed cautiously here and not confuse Philia love with the love of God. Agape love. In the church, let me address those who are looking for friends. I find it's been my experience over the years that those who come into our assembly looking for friends usually leave disappointed. And there's a reason for that. First of all, I think because inherently looking for and finding a friend is the exact opposite way of truly receiving one and finding one. You can't look for it. That's the way to destroy it outright. As I mentioned, when Philia hears that kind of idea, conceives that kind of idea, it hightails it and runs because it's not that kind of a love. I've also found that many times those looking for friends, that there are debilitating effects. I think the key to it, as we've said before, is that you must plant yourself in the soil of communal Christian service. Apart from that common ground with other believers, no genuine friendship has a chance to take root. Stand shoulder to shoulder, knee deep in work of God's service, and you may well, somewhere along the line, discover someone who shares some of your unique passions. I would add there to also remember, all of us, that this is not an essential love. And there are many times there's a great danger to make this an idol. We cannot permit that to happen. 
Let's say secondly to those who have friends, there is nothing evil about enjoying genuine friendships within the church. But we must be careful to assure that such friendships center on a love for Christ and His cause and only secondarily on shared passions. The danger is for the development of a party spirit that rallies around a minor issue. It might be something very mundane as a sport, as a hobby, as some interest. But that interest can become so important to certain friends within a church that the more significant commonality of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is lost. But there are more significant problems that can arise. Around a minor issue, some hobby horse issue, friends can develop a very impenetrable circle that can cause deep trouble in an assembly. And I can say uh, I address nothing by way of knowledge at all, but only by way of caution. Uh, I'm not addressing any situation that I'm aware of in any way, shape, or form within our church. But as we develop friendships, we need to be very cautious that the center of our friendships is a love for Christ and His cause, not some common connection, be that mundane or very significant. Those who enjoy friendships must also work hard not to isolate others. When friendship renders us oblivious to others, or cuts others out of our fellowship, philia has become an idol. The love of friends should never render us blind to our greater responsibility and privilege to lay down our lives and sacrifice for all. And I think that one time among many, but one time when we really face this challenge, is perhaps when we break up from our assemblies. When we break up for our assemblies, there is a common, there's a magnetic pull for us to be drawn to those that bring us the greatest pleasure because we share the most in common. I don't think that's wrong, frankly, I'll get there in a moment, but I think that we also need to be very cautious that we are willing to sacrifice that momentary joy in order to reach out to others and to realize what we're going to realize fully in heaven, and that is that the greatest commonality is Jesus Christ. And if we share that commonality with other believers, then that is, should be the essence of any friendship anyway. We can be friends with all. In time, we will. We won't in this life, but in time, I think that we will. So I would caution those who enjoy such friendships to be sure to reach past them and to sacrifice them at times for the love of others. And this is where, again, agape comes in. We're heading there. I realize you need to be patient, but uh, we won't get there today. But we're heading there. Those who are jealous of others' friendship, I address you, if that is you, if there is any one among us who are jealous of the friendship that others enjoy, it would be easy, I think, for me here in this setting to say all such friendship should cease. It hurts the common cause of our church. But I think to do so would be to play with our own nature and what we are. And I don't think there is anything wrong with these common connections and friendships and friendship love. There's nothing evil about it. When individuals discover a joy in one another's company due to deeply shared common passions and purposes, we should rejoice with those who rejoice. In our jealousy, we may be arguing with a blessing God has chosen to convey. 
There is no room for jealousy in God's household. Should others enjoy a friendship that you wish for, be very careful that you do not erect on the shelf of your mind an idol. Great need for caution. And we don't need to write all of these things down and keep careful track of them and be cautious that we not violate this point or that point. This is the whole beauty of the agape love that God gives us in Christ. Driven by that love, our friendship loves will be carried along and left in a right place at all times. But we must acknowledge that there's great cause for corruption. Let me hasten very quickly in much, in much more shorter fashion to deal with eros, the love of romance. By eros, we speak of romantic love, not strictly speaking of sex, although that is often part of the package. Sex may be experienced without eros and often is, even between married couples and not necessarily always wrong. But sexual desire wants a particular physical pleasure. Eros wants a particular person. Purely sexual desire wants a partner who will please and often any number will do. But Eros wants a particular partner and only he or she will satisfy on all God's green earth. Philia love rarely cares to express its undying loyalty. If you have someone with whom you are a friend, you know that is the case. You don't call them and every time you speak with them say, I want you to know how much I care about you and that I am an undyingly loyal friend. Somebody does that to you, you're getting real nervous, aren't you? You're really not so sure about that friendship thing. That's where Philly is at. But Eros, what does it do? It loves to receive vows and commitments. It loves to give vows and commitments. It loves to express undying fidelity. You've seen the graffiti on a bridge somewhere. So-and-so, what does it say at the bottom? True love forever. By the time you've read it, it's probably over. But they love to say, true love forever. They just want to say that. Again, if you get nervous if a friend started telling you that. But lovers, that is the thing that they live to say. It's essential expression of Eros, even if it's the third or fourth or fortieth romance in this person's life. I will be true to you forever. That's Eros. We find it in biblical demonstration, probably in classic illustration in the Song of Solomon. I'd like to turn there briefly. Song of Solomon. We are dealing with Eros through the Song of Solomon in its purest and best and right form. There's nothing evil about it at all, but it is certainly a tricky love. We even find that in this Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, verse 1 of the first chapter. We find the woman who is really, in many respects, the one who is the protagonist of the whole poem. That is, she's the most important, the featured individual here in this erotic poem. But she says, beginning the book, Let him kiss me. So this is between Solomon and his romantic lover who will become in the book his wife. Not at this point, as we read here. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. 
Now, if anybody in your family or any friend called you and said that, that'd be pretty much the end of your relationship with them. But between lovers, this is the kind of speech that is desired. This song of songs, verse 1, as far as Solomon is concerned, is the song of his lover's passion for him. He revels in it, and he writes about it. Your love, she says, is more delightful than wine. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Solomon now speaks. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. I'm sorry, I said this is Solomon. That doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> well, uh, you understand. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left hand is under my head and his right arm embraces me. We find here, of course, Solomon's wife-to-be. She's weak with passion, verse 5. And this reminds us that romantic love does come with its own set of physical um, capacities and strange experiences. She's weak with passion. Verse 6, her fantasy uh, may be translated, verse 6, O oh, may his left arm be under my head, and O oh, may his right arm embrace me. Whether or not that's the case, I don't think that's the, the issue. It's obvious here that this is a fantasy, that this is a thought that comes before their marriage. They are betrothed to one another at this place. They are essentially married and are married in the Hebrew thinking, but they have not been together physically. And so her passions flow. Solomon speaks in chapter 4 and verse 7. Chapter 4 and verse 7, he says, and I summarize here or, or skip here what begins with chapter 4, but if we jump down to verse 7, it's a lengthy discussion. He says, All beautiful you are, my darling, there is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon with the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the leopards. These are beautiful, well-watered areas of northern Palestine and the area from which apparently she comes. You, he says, verse 9, have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with hina and nard, nard and saffron. These are spices. Uh, calamus and cinnamon with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And she responds, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Chapter 8 and verse 6. 
She says to him, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. We notice here again the difference with Philia. Philia is really not jealous. You have a genuine friend. You're not jealous that they have another friend or spend time with them. But if there is romantic love and there, that romance is being carried out with some other individual, love shows itself to be extremely jealous. It is as strong as death. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. He'll give up anything, she says, for this love of this man and he for her. Well, not much description is really needed beyond what's there. And if you have, as our culture puts it, fallen in love, you know all about it. And if you haven't, you would not believe the explanation if you heard it. Sweaty palms and beating heart and dry mouth and rising blood pressure and distracted mind and feelings of euphoria. Eros is a wild ride, to be sure. But what do we know as we read through the Song of Solomon, not only from later history, but from common experience? How long did that passion sustain itself? It can't last, can it? It doesn't continue. Eros waxes and wanes unpredictably. No one can keep it full throttle forever. Solomon certainly didn't. And I do not suppose the body could sustain the trauma if it did but it waxes and wanes. Young people often would stop and say, why would it ever stop? There's something wrong in Solomon. There's something wrong in his wife. There's something wrong in you old people who let it quit. Well, those of us who have understood it and know it realize that, again, for it to continue, we might explode. Married couples know there's little need for the public display, and the reality of the matter is that romantic love naturally starts and stops and never rises above perhaps the intensity of its early stages, and our public highways are all the safer for it. But eros can deepen, and it can mature. It may not sweat as much, it may not pound the heart as much, it may not raise the blood pressure as much, but it can deepen and it can mature. It can develop with frequency. It cannot, however, sustain its initial intensity. And that is what it is. Well, there's great weaknesses here. Do we need to even discuss them again? Eros can turn idolatrously distracting. Eros can take the form of self-love. Eros can steal focus away from Christ and his purposes. Romantic love is a good gift from God, but like any good gift, this gift can become an idol with hideous power. It can turn destructively fickle. By fickle, I mean shifting, betraying. All I need to say here is David and Bathsheba. Fickle. The fidelity and undying loyalty Eros loves to whisper in the ear of the beloved can quickly disintegrate and whisper the very same word in the ear of a new lover. It can be destructive. Eros can quickly unite two people who should never be put together. 
And so powerful can be that bind that it overarches all thinking and all wisdom. Eros can make an unmarried couple so crazy with passion they will remain together no matter how destructive their relationship is to one another and to all who surround them. Parting is more painful than shaming ourselves. It's more painful than shaming our families. It's more painful than shaming God. We'll do anything to stay together, the two of us. Better, writes Lewis, to be miserable with her than happy without her is what Eros is capable of saying. And in this way, Eros apes divine love. We have seen it, sadly, in our experiences. People who give up all to follow this love to the destruction of every other love and every other sane purpose in life. It leads to suicide pacts and to murder plots. Aping Jesus, Eros can call us to leave father and mother and all else in order to follow its dictates. It can cruelly demand the sacrifice of one's conscience and a host of victims routinely submit to that demand, which is idolatry. A beautiful gift, a dangerous, dangerous partner if it is not guided. So here I speak to the unmarried Perhaps you have entered this lair of Eros love. If you have not ever felt romantic passions for someone, you may not ever, but be aware, as most of us would already be, that this can be a powerful drug. It can steal the mind and can lead you to do things that you should never do. It can tear you away from God's will And so it must be sanctified and controlled by a genuine love for God. Agape love must drive our romantic choices. And I think to some degree we need to really put to rest, and I say to some degree, but we need to put to rest this idea that we're going to run into here in a couple months of this Cupid shooting an arrow, striking you through the heart, and so sorry, but you don't really have any choice now. You've been hit. Potions in the bloodstream. That is not the case. Our love for Christ can keep our heads straight. And I speak especially to those who are unmarried and desirous to be married. Let that agape love of God keep your head straight to the end. Don't let this type of passion lead you to do something you should never do. It's got that power. Only the love of Christ can overcome it. But the love of Christ can overcome it. And it can wait. What is the theme that Solomon's betrothed, his beloved, his lover, what is the theme that she continues to repeat? Don't let love awaken until it's time. Don't let this explode until it's time. That is the battle. And I would call all who are in that position to listen very carefully and to allow love to awaken when God wants it to awaken. Now, there will be attractions, I don't think, personally, humanly speaking, are really going to be very possible to completely stifle. There's going to be the crush, the romance, the interest, the attraction. That will be there. The heart will flutter. 
The knees will knock, the palms will get sweaty at times, and you won't be able, through dry tongue, to even say a conceivable word to the individual. That will happen to you. But you must not let that emotion override God's purposes, ever. To the married, certainly I think there is an appropriate pursuit of romance. And there are some who have left it off long ago, never to resurrect again. And you know what? They can do it. It can work. It will survive. But it is a good gift from God that many ought to nurture. And I think, as I experience in counseling the individual situations, I think many times that romance is at a very low ebb in many couples' lives. I think one thing that we face very much in our culture is time problems. We are so busy doing so much that opportunities to nurture that flame seem to be at a premium. And it's very easy to not pursue what we ought to pursue. Physically, certainly, there are effects. We do have to say on the other side of that that there are many who make romance way too important. As if it's some type of dream that we chase for the rest of our lives. What we need to do is love God with all our heart. And as we love God with all our heart, we will have the love to love our mates as we should. That's what matters more than anything else. Many times in the name of romance, there are all types of opportunities, all kinds of money, all types of poor decisions that are just dropped and thrown away in the name of Eros. When a failure for agape, God is dishonored. We must be very cautious along these lines, even as mates, that we pursue what God has given, but do so in a way that is right and pleasing to Him. All these loves are natural and they're legitimate, but they are all inherently corruptible. None of these loves should be confused with the kind of love that God intends for us and to which I hope here in the next few weeks, by God's grace, as time permits, for us to turn with particular focus and learn what this love of God is. I wanted to build this large porch as we enter in there that we might understand there are loves which ape this true love. And we must understand that and allow this genuine love to sanctify them. These loves are corruptible. The love of family, the love of familiarity, the love of friendship, romantic love, they are very very corruptible. Left to themselves, they will corrupt. You know what is also true of them is that they die without returns. They are loves that must receive. It's all right. That's human. But they are loves that are incomplete because they must receive to stay alive. God's love is something wholly other. And it is that love in our hearts which must drive us in every decision, and in every love that we experience. We cannot confuse storge and philia and eros with the love that comes from God alone. Keep them from corruption. We need the sanctifying, controlling presence of divine love. I've illustrated it for you here as we close. See at the heart is agape. God is love. Agape. It is his very essence, his very nature, and it is that love that is to be at the heart, sanctifying. It is the center, the hub of the wheel. 
from which all of these other loves are to be sanctified and kept in check and fueled and developed. We will, by God's grace, turn our attention to that center concept in the weeks to come, Lord willing. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I thank you for your love for us and for the joy that we have to love one another. And I pray, dear God, for those who are in a position of struggle and trial, I pray for those couples who have lost all sense of genuine romantic love. I pray for those couples who 